0: Still alcoholic. Now we know what happened to the Bank of America. The guy that's running it came out from under a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the stuff you learn in AHA, isn't it?
1: Uh,
0: This is what happens when you don't say no to a request. you end up in Visalia. I'm driving in here this afternoon and it says 98 degrees on my... And I go, what the hell am I doing in Visalia? Sometimes it's Hawaii. Today it's Visalia. You know, I'm an AA zealot. Uh, I I bought the whole package. I shaved my head. And I got the special underwear. You know, the secret handshake and the nickname and the whole thing. I'm 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 a zealot. I bought the whole package. I believe it all. I've done it all. I have no rational explanation for that. My previous history before getting to AA would not lead you to believe that I would jump into it with both feet and just live it for the rest of my life but here I am Um, my sobriety date, March the 27th 1985 and uh, I have never been bored in AA in 27 years I have never been bored I've been pissed off and I've been hurt and injured and I've been treated horribly on many occasions, but I've never been bored. I can tell you, if you're sitting here tonight, in this AA meeting, and you're bored, it truly is, because you are bored. This is better than any reality television show you'll ever see. I mean, you can stay sober around here for a long time on just the stories alone, you know? And I'm sure you have an Alano Club around here. You know, whenever you're bored, just go to the Alano Club and sit back and watch the show. You know, just watch the show. It's incredible. You know, a couple of things happened to me that I feel really lucky about. Um, when I got here, I was like anybody else to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not want to be here. This was not my choice. I ended up here. Um, but really quickly, within a couple of days, I just liked it. You know, I mean, I can remember driving home after a meeting. It was either the first meeting or second meeting. One of the early meetings I went to. And it was one of these crazy meetings. It was called the Gong Show. It was the Hermosa Vigelana Club on Friday night. A lot of people say it really wasn't an AA meeting. Probably it probably wasn't. You know I mean? It was totally politically incorrect, and everybody was acting crazy. And it was a big Friday night meeting. People were dressed up, and they all had their girls with them, and the other guys were looking for girls. And it was just, I'm standing in the back of the room trying to be cool. Have you ever tried to be cool in AA? It's impossible matter of fact, my friend Scott Redman used to say that Alcoholics Anonymous has offered me a level of lameness that I did not know was available. You know, I mean, this is a new paradigm of stupid, you know. It's like, you know, so I'm, but I'm back there like everybody else, trying to be cool, right? And I'm watching this show, and I remember distinctly driving home thinking to myself, this may not be so bad. Because I was laughing. It made, he made me laugh. Like many people talk about, I hadn't really laughed really hard in a long time. And you were funny. And I got the joke. And and not everybody does. Not everybody gets the joke. Not everybody gets here and likes it.
1: I had a guy not
0: long ago call me up on the phone. And I've watched this guy come in and out of AA for, God, 10 or 15 years. Painful to watch And he calls me up and he goes, you know, Bill, I don't know what to do. And I go, what's the matter? He goes, I just can't stand the meetings. I just hate them. What should I do? I I sat and I thought. and I go, man, I don't know, man. I don't know. I guess you can make yourself go for a while. But but I said, asking me this. How come you don't like them? What is it about it that is so painful to you? And you couldn't really give me a clear answer, you know? But you know what it is now that I think about it, if some time has gone by, Because you, you can't hear the music. All he hears is, is the words. And I, I don't know about you, but what I get in touch with, especially in my home group on Monday night, is that I'm sitting in a room full of people whose lives have been saved. There's a lot of energy around that. You know, there's people that literally have been born again. I mean, the rest of the world is trying to get born again. We're just sitting around here trying to figure out what the hell happened. You know? Isn't that true? Uh, I was sitting with a really pretty high-powered AA guru some years ago. I mean, not an AA guru, but an Indian guru, a guy from India. And I was going to listening to him, and after he gave a talk to a bunch of people, there was two or three of us that were sitting around with him in this back room, just sitting and talking, and he looked at me, and, I, and he starts laughing, and I said, what are you laughing at? He goes, I just love you alcoholics and drug addicts. And I said, why is that? He goes, well, the rest of them out there are trying to get awakened. You're just trying to figure out what the hell happened. You know? <laughs> And he was sincere about that. I think that's true about us. We have been awakened. And we're just lame enough that we don't pick up on that, you know. We're just going to another meeting, you know. The second thing that happened to me that I think I was very lucky, just pure luck, is I asked a man to help me. And he invited me right into his home. was outside of the meeting, and I I asked, him. I said, you know, I I need to get a sponsor. It's been a couple of weeks I've been paying around meetings. And and I asked him for help, and he says, you know, read the doctor's opinion. And make notes in the margin of what you agree with and what you don't. Be in my house Thursday at 5 o'clock, and we'll go over it, and we'll discuss it. Now, I thought you were all doing this. I, I thought this is what. Every, how would I know any different? I, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that there were people you could go up and ask them, and they'd say, "Well, yeah, sure, read the book. If you run into a problem, give me a call." You know, I didn't know that there was that kind of sponsorship, or or the kind that you hear about a lot. My sponsor is my best friend. We're really friends. You know, I've got the same sponsor for twenty-seven years. He's still my enemy. You know, now he's the sponsor I have friends that I can talk to about my sponsor like, what did your sponsor tell you you know what I mean what, what Jay my sponsor says the first thing he does with new guys and he did this, he actually did this with me, is introduced me to other guys that are getting sober around the same time so that you have a group of people that you can get together with and talk about how horrible it is you're being treated by your sponsor because um, it helps it cushions the blow and uh and I showed up to his house Thursday at five o'clock, and uh, he did not trust me that I'd read it, and he had me sit there and read it to him out loud. Rule number one: when you're working with people, make sure they read the book. Don't trust them. Read it with them. Make sure they read it. And we went through the book and. And he would bring things to my attention and I would ask him my questions or my comments and what I agreed with and what I didn't like. And and we started the process. And he worked the steps with me alone in a room, just the two of us. I got lucky. I found a guy that was willing to do that. He wasn't intimidated by me. He wasn't impressed by me. He wasn't afraid of me. I don't mean that physically, but there's a lot of people that are really unwilling to sit along with somebody else. It's too intimate. It's too scary. It's inconvenient as hell. And it continues to be inconvenient in my life. And I love it. And as Tyler said, that's Alcoholics Anonymous to me. My email is BillC at KitchentableAA.com Sitting across the kitchen table. That's where AA really happens. The meetings just reflect what's going on in the local community I'll call it some of alcoholics. So I love it. But I was a surfer and a biker and a tough guy, and I never went to the beach. My motorcycle rarely ran, and I was afraid to fight. But I looked really good. I had a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt of black greasy Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I've got tattoos all over me, but I had a clip-on earrings. I didn't want to hurt myself. My biker nickname was Horny. I have a tattoo on my arm right here, and it's misspelled. It's H-O-R-N-E-Y Hornay
1: That's
0: pretty much all you need to know about me and, uh, <laughs> I mean, at 17, I was a bad drunk in high school Every one of us tells the same story We all tell the same story I mean, the events of the story could be different In the area, the culture what we do and don't do. Some of us are outgoing. Some of us are introverted. Some of us are out in the street all the time. Others of us are hiding in the bathroom for 20 years or so. You know, some of us have virtually no social skills at all when we get here. You know, and uh, but we all tell the same story in that we talk about long before we ever drank, we didn't feel part of. We all say that. We all talk about feeling disconnected and not part of. It. You know, the aliens had dropped us off, and we were waiting for the mothership to return, you know. <laughs> we have a cute way of describing it. But everyone tells that story. And we talk about that experience like it's unique, like it only happens to us. The reason all of us tell that story is because every kid feels like that. Every kid feels like that. The difference between us and them is that we medicated that feeling and we never grew out of it. And when we get to Alcoholics Anonymous, we are the same kid. I was 37 years old when I got here, and on a good day, I had the emotional development of a 16-year-old. And that kid was not an honor student. He was the one with a bit of a problem with authority. That kid. Remember that kid? It was the lad with his big jacket and the slouch and the sneer and the foul mouth and the bad attitude. That kid. I was 17. I'm walking around carrying a gun. At 17, I'd already been to jail. At 17 started drinking seriously at 15, you know, before that you'd chip away at it, but, you know, within a couple of years I was this monster, you know, I mean, the truth is I wasn't very nice even before then, but, but we all tell that story, and usually when we tell the story about being disconnected, we'll say stuff like, I had the ism long before I drank, we say things like, I had alcoholic thinking. As if there is such a thing. I mean, you can repeat stuff around here and people will just start repeating it like it's real. alcoholic? I've got alcoholic thinking. Hey, that's my problem, alcoholic thinking. The only place you ever hear that term, alcoholic thinking, is in Alcoholics Anonymous. No one else ever uses that term. You know what the professional community says about us? They say that we are emotionally immature. And we hear that, and we go, no! I have special thinking. I have alcoholic thinking, and it's never going away. And you need to consider that when you're dealing with me. I have special thinking. And I'm convinced. I think we're just emotionally immature. And now that we're sober, we're going to grow up now. And we're a little late. And the chances of us doing that and looking good are really slim. It's not going to be huge. I'm the guy that walks into the room, and if you're looking at me, it's what the hell are you looking at? And if you don't look at me, I'm heartbroken. And there is nothing in between. There's not like striations of emotional development, you know. I mean the depth of my shallowness knows no bounds. You know? And the psychotherapeutic community is trying to get me to dig up that and uncover that good little billy that got suppressed a long time ago, you know? And I'm convinced. He ain't there. It's <laughs> not there. It never developed. It never got developed. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us started drinking and juice. You know, some people at 10, 11. A lot of us at 12, 13. Most of us 14, 15, 16. Right when we're growing up. Right in the middle of it all. And part of the story we tell is... We feel this, this disconnect from society, from our family, and then we have a couple of thoughts and it all goes away, as Tyler was describing, you know? I think the whole idea of behind the drinking thing, if I remember correctly, is to have a couple of thoughts and get out of the house, and go to the party, and have some fun, and meet her or him, and have an adventure, alcohol is a social lubricant. I ended up naked in my living room watching religious television and taking notes, Party, You know? I mean, I'm having sex, manaja uno. There's no one else in the room. You know, I mean, we're partying with Billy now. Let's get serious. You know? The next time you see some guy come walking into things, he says, I'm just a party kind of guy, ask him, how many other people were at the party? Not far from here is Bath Lake. Fourth of July, 1966, uh, Hells Angels drove into that valley, and I found my career path. And I thought, yeah, I want to be a gunslinger, you know, bad guy, wear a big, long duster and get me a Harley, carry guns, be tough. It still looks good to me today. See some old fat bastard with a gray beard up there? That's Iron Harley going at night. And I look at him and I go, go get him, dude. Never say hi.
1: I'm
0: driving my Christ Lord you in know? all We just love the dark side, don't we? It never goes away either. I'm always looking over there on that side of the railroad tracks, just kinda of keeping an eye on it. Right? You never know. Kinda of fun over there. That weekend I met her and she lived in Oregon and we were supposed to take the bus back and I drove her back myself. We went up there to grow our own. And it was the sixties. It was a great time to be getting high. It was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. Every decade since is one of the P.S., you know? I mean, the road from L.A. to San Francisco was a road to Nirvana, and Golden Gate Park was the center of the universe. They weren't eating hitchhikers yet, so it was safe to try The young ladies were discovering their sexuality, and we were helping them as best we could. You know? you only hear people say, I wouldn't trade my worst day sober for my best day drunk. I wouldn't trade 66 and 67 for anything. From what I understand, it was a real hoodo. We got married, had a couple of kids, and by the time I was 22, I was in the Oregon State Mental Institution. And I was running with an outlaw motorcycle gang and I was sticking meals in my arm every day and drinking like a fish and not coming home to that family and they were on welfare. We lost the house and a couple of cars and jobs and it was horrible. It was horrible. Short party. Short party. Some of us were able to drink successfully for a while. That was never my story. You know, as soon as I picked it up, as soon as I started doing it, I just went in the toilet immediately. My life just stopped, and uh, it got worse and worse and worse. Anybody else been in a mental institution?
1: <laughs> oh come
0: on! There's a bunch of you out there going, Stanley wasn't in an institution. <laughs> they they were just observing me. Um, Well, you can count AA as kind of an institution, you know. State of Oregon thought I should leave. I agreed. And uh, I came back down to Los Angeles and tried to get normal. And what normal is, for a lot of us, you got to quit shooting heroin. You can't get anybody to go along with the concept of social heroin use. It's pretty much a lifestyle. So I just quit. You know, I just quit. You got to quit taking acid because normal people have two-way communication with each other. And with LSD, you don't need the other person. You know, you, know, you can, it's pretty much a one-sided kind of a thing. You know, and. and uh, can party with yourself. Yeah. You can only drink on the weekends because normal people have jobs. They go to them days in a row. I've seen them do it. I've watched them. It. It's incredible. You know. And When I drink, I don't show up no matter what. Everything literally stops. I, I can't make it to work. I'm busy. So you can only drink on the weekends. So what you do during the weekend is you smoke pot because it's green and it's and It's not really drugs. Because no. I don't know about you, but the impact of your personality on me is devastating. I cannot do you. I need something in me all the time to cushion the blow of you on me. You know, I just can't walk around with naked blood and interact and communicate. I don't get it. You know, so for twenty-three or four years, I had something in my system all the time, all the time. You know, I didn't drink every single day, but it was something in me to cushion the impact of just life. You know, I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. Um, the other thing you got to do to get normal is you got to find a woman, because I can't ever, ever be alone. It, it is a group effort getting me through life. It takes a village, <laughs> and, uh, and there's volunteers out there <laughs> that will take us on. Huh? That's why they have that other program. Can you imagine the consciousness of an individual that would actually live with us on purpose? <laughs> what are they thinking? You know, well, this will be fun. You know, but I met her. I met this girl, and. We set up housekeeping and after a while we got married my dad gave me a job in his machine shop and he let me sleep in his garage and I you know, I had a job and I tried and I clean I cleaned it up a little bit. I cleaned it up. And I was able to kind of just stumble along and not go to jail and, and you know, it got a little bit better and I met her and we fell in love and tried to have tried to have a life together. And the time came we had a couple of kids. And at 37 years old, I'm living in the house with this woman and these two small children, and I have no emotional connection to another living human being. And I didn't know that. I didn't know it was that bad. I can't stand outside myself and have a separate experience and compare it to the one that I'm having to determine that there's anything wrong. I don't know that there's anything wrong. I mean, the alcoholic life seems like the only normal one to me because it's the only one I've ever known. It wasn't like I had another life, and then I lost it. Sometimes, some for some people, that's true. You know, they started later in life, and they had a life, and then they lost everything. I never had one. So I don't I don't know that I'm not connected to you. It feels like I'm connected to you, because you're such a pain in the ass. You know? When you're making demands on me, you want me to take you and the kids to the zoo and stuff, you know? And it's like... I don't I can't do any of this. I don't I can have children but I don't know what to do with them. You know, once they're around and they start talking to me and stuff, they're more self centered than me. It's competition. You know? And I so I'm not a father, you know, I'm not a husband. There's no sex in the relationship anymore. Sex is a celebration of the intimacy that exists in a relationship. There's no intimacy in any relationship I have, so there's no sex. There's nothing going on. I'm just dead inside, completely dead. Silver says a powerful thing in the doctor's opinion. He says we lose touch with all things human. This was written by a man, not an alcoholic, just observing us, just watching us move through life. It's obvious to other people we are not connected to what's going on around us, including the people that we're with. We are not connected to them. And we don't know that. We don't know that. It's not a conscious thing on my part. But here I am at 37, one more drunk, nothing special. Come home late at night, still sitting there in the morning, sitting in my alcoholic chair. And the sun comes up one more time and I'm in the wrong place. And it's going to be a horrible day. It's going to be an awful day. I'm not going to make it to work. You know, my little girl, my little daughter gets up and is happy to see that daddy's up early and I can't even talk to her. I'm so hammered. And every time I look her in the eyes, it just makes me cry. Because the kids can kind of cut through the fog. They can get through it. They'll hurt you. And they don't even know it. They're just happy to be around you. So like any good gangster, I called my Mom! <laughs> my mother had been in Al-Anon for 30 years at this time my dad got sober when I was 60 years old so on top of all my other problems I was raised in an AA house there's nothing worse than living in a house with two people with clear eyes to know exactly what's going on in your AA <laughs> not good not good the were efficient and prepared, and she got there quickly, within a half an hour, because you know what happens, if we lay down and take a nap for half an hour, everything changes. You wouldn't want to rush into anything, you know. And she came and got me, and she took me to Costa Mesa and checked me into a place called Starting Point, Point. and I was in there for 35 days. I went to my first shrink when I was 13 years old because I had rage. Not anger, rage. Double over, fall on the floor in a ball, Bile come up from the stomach into the throat, pain, throbbing, fist into walls, head into the walls, rage at the injustice of it all. I have no idea where that came from, but I had it when I was really young. I spent a year and a half with that guy and he helped me and he introduced me to my favorite subject. Me. That lifelong pursuit of self. You know, whenever I hear anybody, an alcoholic anonymous say, I'm looking for my truth, I just move away from them because it creeps me out. You know, it's like the last thing I want to do is find any more out about me. You know. I'm just creeped out with me, you know. It's just just weird. I mean, I'm 65 years old. I'm 27 years sober. At this point in my life, I am absolutely—I mean this sincerely—I am bored to tears with myself. But you, on the other hand, are a never-ending font of weirdness. It just never stops, you know. (laughs) You know, but this isn't a self-help program. You're not going to find yourself in AA. It's about being relieved of the bondage of that self that you are looking for. You you don't have far to look. It's right in here. It's telling you about itself all the time, constantly, constantly. Self-talk is insanity. That's insanity. But I was into it. I went to a mental institution twice, and this is a barbed wire on the top of the fence, lockdown mental institution. It's where Ken Hee worked when he wrote Cuckoo's Nest. The ward that I was on is where they filmed that movie. Now, the reason I tell you that is not to brag, but some people went to college. That's all I got. This <laughs> is this man. You know, this <laughs> is that's my graduate school. You know, is my graduate school. I spent two and a half years in group therapy at one time. I've been to several other strengths and therapists over the years. I've been consulted and rolled in primal strain. I know more about myself than it's safe to know. So while I was in this recovery program for 35 days, they made me wear a sign around my neck. I had to make the sign. They made it in crashed. <laughs> a little rectangular piece of cardboard with a string that went through it and it said, I am not a counselor. (laughs) Because evidently there was some confusion about that. And then after 35 days they let me out. (laughs) <laughs> he just let us out okay like we're okay go for it multiply and where do we end up like Tyler said here Alcoholics Anonymous the world's aftercare program and it's linoleum floors and metal folding chairs for the rest of our natural lives
1: <laughs>
0: you know there's no referrals from AA did you know that there's no place you go where you walk in and you say to them, "I'm from AA. They sent me here."
1: <laughs>
0: that place doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, we are the counselors. The inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> Stop to think about this. I've been married three times, and people ask me if the relationship is like. <laughs> I give it to them. I figure, hell, you can't hurt them.
1: (laughs) They're an AA, you know.
0: Plus, the fact, whatever advice I give them could not possibly be worse than what they're planning on doing anyway. (laughs) So now I'm an AA. I'm a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous. What now? What happens? I mean, you hear a lot of stuff, don't you? You hear a lot of stuff. I think there's a lot of really good stuff that's been brought to AA over the years from outside. I think we understand alcoholism a hell of a lot better than we, we did before. Uh, we've got a lot of history with it now. We've got 77 years of working with people. We've got a pretty good idea what the problem is and what the solution is. I think there's a lot of stuff that's coming into aid that's really dangerous. like one of the worst things that you can ever tell anybody is to take what you can use and leave the rest. Just stop and think about that. Mull it over in your head. Isn't that the way you and I have lived our lives all of our lives? <laughs> You're going to leave it up to me with this finely-tuned instrument and determine what's good for me? In past history, when have I ever made a really good choice about that?
1: You know?
0: I mean, you're going to ask me to do stuff that's going to make me uncomfortable, and I'm going to go, No. No thanks. I'll just sit right here. Thank you. you know? Why would I ever consciously put myself in a position to be uncomfortable? I've never done that before. My whole life has been centered around making sure that I'm comfortable. I created a chemical environment around myself to make sure I was comfortable. Why would I consciously be uncomfortable? The most spiritual thing that you'll ever hear in Alcoholics Anonymous is, get in the car. I mean that sincerely. Get in the car. Where are we going? What do you care? Get in the car. You'd be well, you probably wouldn't be surprised at how many people cannot get in the car. They just won't get in the car. You know? They're gonna run it themselves, like I always have. My sponsor said a couple of things to me early on. He said, My job as your sponsor is to guide you through the process of the twelve steps, that you might find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problems. I would be happy to sit here and listen to what you think your problems are so that you will not share about them in the
1: meetings.
0: (laughs) The meetings are for recovery from alcoholism, not about how you're dating it. And I informed them, I said, you know, down there at the Alamo Club, they're breaking that rule right and left. Should we go tell them? He said, no, he said, AA is a safe place. You can go there and do pretty much whatever you want, share about whatever you want. Nobody can stop you. There's no rules. It's a safe place. That's what you want to do. I'm describing to you my AA. Thank God I found somebody to work with me that didn't buy into this crap that we don't give advice or express opinions. If we didn't do those two things, we wouldn't have anything to say to each other. And I'm a newcomer in AA. I need some good advice. I do not need people quoting page numbers at me. It means nothing to me. I won't read it anyway, And if I did, I probably wouldn't get it. You know, I need a man to sit down across the table from me and tell me what I need to do very clearly. And I was lucky. I found a guy. Example. I'm two, three months over. My wife comes home and she says... I'd like you to stay home on Tuesday night and watch the children so that I can go to an Alamon meeting. And it pissed me off. I just looked at her and I said, it's a toss in my lungs. I said, I don't babysit. I couldn't believe she even asked me that. And I stormed out of the house. That's who got here. That's the guy. I made the mistake of telling my sponsor. He rarely yelled at me. He's not a yeller. He's not a finger pointer, not a finger in the chest guy. I don't know too many of those people. I suppose they're actually around, but I think it's more the way we take it than the way that it's delivered, really. And he informed me. He said, it's not babysitting. They're your children. This was news to me. this is another way to look at the situation I had never considered that you know he says now you go back there with a smile on your face you tell your wife you'd be happy to watch the children on Tuesday nights while she tries to find recovery and all on on family trips. so I went back home and i went like I'd happy <laughs> well the first Tuesday night rolls around my little boy is like a year old I don't know what I thought he was going to do he just passed out you know and the little girl was three. You know, She we watched TV and we talked and we did some stuff. You know, and the next week she didn't want to watch TV. We played some board games and things. And, then, you know, one night I remember we were sitting outside just playing cash with each other. The summertime was so light out. And as time I went on, I developed a relationship with this little girl who was now 30 years old, teaching fifth grade in elementary school, and she just gave me my first grandchild. And she still sits on her daddy's lap. I love her so passionately sometimes it scares me. And I started to have a relationship with her. My wife came home one night. She says, hey, I'm not going to my own on and I said, well, you better go somewhere. This is my night with a
1: kid.
0: Isn't that how it works? I don't know what page number that's on. That's like a real world problem. That's bad behavior that needs to stop right now, whether I like it or not. Irrespective of how I feel about it or what I think about it, it doesn't matter. There is good behavior and there is bad behavior. And I had a lot of bad behavior. And I had men that would sit down and tell me, don't be like that. Don't talk to people like that. Don't you know, so stand so close, Don't you know, so stick your finger out. You're six foot five and weigh down near three hundred pounds. You know, sit down and smile when you're speaking to people. You're scary. You know, I actually told you that. It really it's really is scary the shit out of me right now. A smile. You know, it's not that bad anymore, Bill, you know. The war is over, dude. Yeah.
1: You know. Um
0: here's what I think is going on for whatever it's worth the first step and I, and I did this I went to his house every week and we read a chapter in the book each week and we went through the steps and he guided me through this process it's the exact same thing I do with guys now and I do some step studies and workshops lots of other stuff but the down home thing is me and this guy reading the book and sharing our lives together you know, he would share his stuff with me he would listen to me I mean, the reason you hear people go into meetings and sharing about how their day went is because they don't have a sponsor or they don't have a relationship with one. Part of my job with you is is if I'm sponsoring you, if I'm with you, or even if you just feel close to me, and listen to you tell me about what's going on in your life. I am interested. I'm interested. And if there's any way I can help, I would be happy to help. If I can help you find a job, if I can, I can loan you a few bucks, I've got some money, you need a few bucks, I could get 20 every now and then. I don't, so would I? why would not? You hear these people say we're not a taxi service, we're not a lending institution? Bullshit. I don't read that in the book anymore. We do all that stuff for each other, all the time. If you don't have any money, don't lend money. As a matter of fact, in AA, don't ever lend money. Just give it to them. You and if you don't want to be some guy's debtor, man. You know, I don't want to muddy the waters and spoil the relationship, but I'll do what I can to help you. And that's the way this man was with me. And when you hear people come into meetings, dump them stuff all the time, constantly in the meetings, because they don't have that kind of relationship. And they're clearly not working the steps. If they were, they would be sharing about that in the meetings. You would hear that because that is an attribute of the component of their life. It's just my opinion, but it's a really good one. The first best we were powerless. Now they took it easy on us and they just said that we were powerless over alcohol because they did not want us to run screaming down the street. After 27 years of relatively deep research, I've yet to find anything I have any power over at all. I think in nature I am just utterly and completely and totally powerless. I don't think the, un- the totality of all things requires any input from me whatsoever for the unfolding to occur. I think I'm completely powerless. I don't see anything else, any other creature in nature that has any power. They simply seem to do what they do. I mean, the lion eats the lamb every time. And we look at that and we say, that mean old big ugly lion should not eat the lamb. It's unfair. It's kills little the lamb, you know, and yet the lion continues to eat the lamb. And we think it's wrong, and we suffer over that. So we make up parables, and we say, there will come a time in the future when things are good, because they're really bad right now, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, and that behavior will stop. If that day comes, I bet you that lamb will be nervous for eternity. (laughs) It is the nature of the lion to eat the lamb, and there is no morality playing it. There's no good or bad. It's just the nature of each creature fulfilling its nature. And we look at those things and we judge them, don't we? We look at things that happen to us and to other people and we make judgments upon it. We say, that's good and that's bad. That doesn't exist in nature. We create that. Things simply are. They are neither good nor bad. They simply are. And you and I, most all human beings, have a deep and profound trouble with that. We struggle with it. And when we have loss in our life, we feel the pain of the loss. Then we determine that it should not have occurred or that it was unfair. So now we have the pain of the loss and we've laid a layer of suffering over the top of that. It will last much longer than the pain of the loss. We will carry that suffering through us to the end of our lives long after the pain of the loss is gone. Powerless, utterly powerless. The second half says that my life became unmanageable. It alludes to the fact that at one time maybe it was manageable. I don't remember that time. I think my life doesn't need to be managed. I think it just unfolds all the time. The next indicated thing is obvious. The alarm goes off, get up. The bill comes in the mail, says pay this amount. Yeah, enough. You know, I think it's that simple. If I can grasp this just a little bit, this powerlessness, just the drinking thing, just that part, just enough of it, it makes the second step operational. I need to align myself with the power. There is something that seems to be running the show. Maybe I should attempt to tap into that. And I need to be restored to sanity, enough sanity to not break the news, certainly, but also enough sanity to be able to begin to see the powerlessness, to recognize it. This is the beginning of acceptance. The very beginning of learning to accept things as they are, which includes the people in our lives. Because evidently, my, my happiness is dependent upon your behavior because I spend an inordinate amount of time trying to adjust you so that we can both be a little bit happier. You would absolutely insist upon living your own life, and it pisses me off at my core, you know, why well, you can't see the light. If I can do that second step, just a little bit, just acknowledge the fact that I need to align myself with the power, the third step becomes operational. Now, the third step is interesting, because they're, they're, they're leading us to believe that we actually have some say in the matter. We're going to turn our life and will over... To what already has it anyway? Isn't that the classic alcoholic position? There's the universe and me. That's impossible. That's impossible. But I can just see myself. Well, I've withheld myself from the totality of all things long enough now. I'm going to acquiesce and allow you to take me. Thank you very much. Let's you know? so give Billy an award. But what life and will is it talking about? The fourth step, the inventory. The resentments, the fears, and broken relationships. The end result of living a life with seeming power. That's the fourth step. What it talks about in the third step, I'm going to turn my life and will over. Here it is. This is the step I need to get rid of. The fifth step is the ceremony that we go through to complete the third step. We physically and literally give it to someone else. We say it to ourselves, to this other person sitting with us, and to this manager. Here's my stuff, I'm pooped, you take it. Six and seven are two paragraphs in the book, character defects. You say the prayer, it's over, there's nothing to do. And we'll be doing that nothing for the rest of our lives. And you can see what the character defects are. They're in the fourth column of the repentance list. It doesn't say what was my part. It says what were my faults and mistakes. Even if I was molested as a child or beaten as a child, if I'm 40 years old and I'm still carrying that resentment around, at the bare minimum, I'm unforgiving. And it's not about the perpetrator. It's not about agreeing with what occurred. It's about relieving myself of that wound, of that scar. I played no part in it but I have to let it go. If there's going to be freedom or peace in my life, I must at some point let it go. And that's a part of much more than a new society. The manager gives us our first assignment. He says, make amends. I'm going to help rid you of the resentment. The mechanism for ridding ourselves of those resentments is the eighth and ninth step. We go back to those people and we take, it, we take responsibility for our faults and mistakes, whatever it might be. Now, at the end of the ninth step, have I grown up? Am I capable of intimacy now? Can I truly connect with you? No. One through nine is about 15% of the program, maybe only 10. It's the bare minimum. It's sober 101. It's the least amount we have to do in order to develop a message that has some depth and weight in order to clear the decks for the real work that's going to begin to start now. And we suffer over one through nine, don't we? We have year-long workshops and 15-column expanded versions of the inventory, and there's people out there doing inventory after inventory after inventory. It's just another form of self-obsession. Have I done any inventory? Yeah, I have. You know, because I sponsor people. I'm always in the book, you know? I'm always doing workshops, I'm always part of stuff, so I'm always writing stuff down. I'm looking at myself a lot, more than I'd like to, really. But that's not the purpose of it, to me. 10, 11, and 12 people say are the maintenance steps. Maintain what? What have I got at the end of the ninth step that needs maintenance? Is this just about not drinking? I don't think so. I think it's about a lot more than that. I think Alcoholics Anonymous is the single most significant social movement of the 20th century. David Hawkins in his book Power Versus Forrest talked about it has touched the lives of 50% of the population of North America alone, just North America. That's close to 300 million people. That is the, significantly, the most significant social movement of the 20th century. It doesn't even include the rest of the world. You know, they do a census every four or five years out of GSO to see how many people there are in AA. They figure there's like two and a half million. If you get into those statistics, which I have, if you you look into how they develop those numbers, you come to understand they have no idea at all how many people are in AA. They're not even close. They say there's 150,000 meetings in AA. There could be four, or five or 500,000 meetings. There certainly is more than 2.5 million people, maybe 4 or 5 million, maybe more. They have no idea. How many meetings do you go to that aren't registered with New York? Any meeting that's not registered doesn't get counted, and the people in it don't get counted. You take a sample of it. There's people you'll hear around, walking around, how we've lost our edge, but we used to have a 75% success rate, now it's less than 5 I'm here to report to you. I travel around AA a lot. And Alcoholic wellness is alive and well and as vibrant and as effective as it has ever been. It's better than it's ever been. It's better. I think. The children are coming now. Have you noticed? Have you seen them? Do you get them out here? The 15-year-olds and the 15-year-olds. Do you? Move your heads up and down. Yes or no? Okay. We just want to make sure you're awake. You know, but the kids are coming. My home group is the for most of each men's stay. There's about a hundred guys in there. It's where the men are men and the sheep are nervous. You know, we're a badass right-wing AA group. We don't want to hear about how your day went. If you start sharing about your girlfriend, we'll just clap so you stop. You know, we're one of those guys. You not know, have the room cage gay, and we don't talk about that. You know, it's like... <clears throat> and a few years ago, the kids started showing up. They were always out in the parking lot, but they started coming into the meeting. And a few years ago, this kid, this 15-year-old kid, has taken a one-year birthday cake and standing up at the head of the room. And it can be intimidating because we are judging you. We're not shy. <laughs> we'll give you a written report afterwards of how you did. So this kid standing up at the head of the room, and he's taking his cake. And at the end of the talk, he, he gave the most right-wing talk I've ever heard. At the end of it, he was standing there pointing and yelling. He says, if you're sitting out there and you don't have a sponsor and you're not working the steps, may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> I would not have asked him to be my sponsor.
1: <laughs> and for
0: weeks after that, we were walking around looking at each other going, may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> Recovery is available at all levels of our society now. It's available. It's part of the lexicon, It's part of the language. They make TV shows about it. I don't watch any of them because I live it. It's enough. You know, I don't, you don't need to dramatize it. It's already dramatic and traumatic, you know. So how they can say that we've lost our edge, I don't get it. You know, and I don't agree with it. You know? And it's not been my experience. 10, 11 and 12 is 85 percent of the program. It's where we live. It's where we live our lives. 10 is the continuing inventory process. It's about self-awareness as compared to self-obsession. If what happened to me when I'm in March of 85 is I was awakened, the rest of the journey is to take that awakening and turn it into some kind of an awareness where I'm actually aware that I'm awake, and maybe there's something I can do with this. Maybe there's a reason why I'm here. Maybe this is just for me to find myself. It's not a support group or a self-help group. Maybe it's not just about socializing, all of which occurs here. But maybe there's a reason I'm supposed to be here. Maybe there's a purpose behind this. I don't even need to know what it is. All I've got to do is open my eyes and pay attention. And there's two things I live my life by. I try vigorously to live my life by these two things. One is get rid of color ID, answer the phone, Stop controlling the experience. Have faith that whoever is calling me is supposed to be in my life. That it's not a mistake. That it's supposed to be there. I'm powerless. Let it happen. Let it happen. And this is how it happens. That's how they get a hold of us now. The second thing is you never say no. Why would you say no? Let it happen. Get in the car. Have faith that wherever you're being asked to go or to do or to say is what's supposed to happen. It's how he gets a hold of us. And I say to myself, I don't want to go to Syria. (laughs) Go anyway. Go anyway. Who knows why I'm supposed to be here? I don't know. I don't care anymore. I love the energy of AA. I love being around it. I know now that when I get in the airplane or I get in the car, when I get there, I'm going to feel the power. And I feel it. All the time. You know, I've become used to it, really. I'm on a liver transplant list. I spend a lot of time in the hospital, in and out. When I come here, you heal me. And I mean that. I can walk in here dragging ass and brain dead and meaning to tell and by the end of the hour and a half, I just simply feel better, just by being around the energy of people who are alive that should be dead. And I believe that. I can watch myself move through life. That's the tenth step. Paying attention, being mindful. The eleventh step in meditation, which is not extra credit, in the step. In meditation, I can have the very real experience of watching my thoughts. I can sit and take a few deep breaths and focus on my breathing. And when my mind wanders away, which it always does, that's what minds do. I can catch it and bring it back to the breath. The question is, who's doing the catching? I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but I can tell you one thing by just experience. And anyone sitting in this room can have this experience. You come to understand that at death, you are not your thinking mind. That is a game-changing thing. When you really grasp that at death. In AA, we say things like, my hands out to get me. We talk about it in the third person. I think we figured it out. Of course we make it adversarial. I I don't think it's out to get me. I think it's trying to help. It's just stupid. I mean, stop and think about it. Why would it kill the host? All it's capable of doing is taking the past and projecting it into the future. That's all it does. It creates nothing. It just takes credit for shit. You know? It just takes the path it's flat and two-dimensional. It's not created. It never comes up with new stuff. Now that I can see that, now that I know that, because I've had the experience of it, not just the intellectual understanding, but the experience, the knowingness that transcends the intellect. Experience. Experiencing the higher power. Not thinking about it. No belief mechanism tied to it. Experiencing it. That's what happens in AA. We experience the movement of the force. All the time, especially if we're paying attention. It's an experience that requires no dogma. There doesn't have to be a belief mechanism tied to it at all. You can simply tap into it at will, anytime you want. Now that I know that I'm not my thinking mind, I don't have to analyze it. I don't have to change it. I don't have to work on it. I don't have to share it with others. I can simply ignore the damn thing. And it will die off out of just pure neglect. Because it wants to be organized. It believes it's me. And I believe it's me too. We're in collusion together. And it comes up with stuff, and I attach emotion to it, and we go about our business out there creating havoc in the world. You know, Once I unplugged from that, this happened to me when I was about 20 years sober. When I stopped reading stuff and doing stuff to gather information to just give back to you, and I started doing it with intent because I really needed help. Because I was really sick and I was frightened and I was depressed. And I started meditating with intent and it changed my life. It literally changed my life. And I didn't do anything that I did not already know about for many years, but knowing it means nothing until you actually apply it, and you internalize it, and you have the experience of it. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Great tool. Very simple. Two to three minutes of a shot, that's all. The only way you can do it wrong is to not do it. The 12th, is why we're here. Should everybody sponsor? Absolutely. There's nothing else to do. There is no other job than Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything else is an activity. And the activities are all fun. I've done them all. But don't ever mistake the activity for the action. Whatever prejudice that you might have, will walk across the room and ask you for help. Now you have a choice. You have a choice. If you want to hang on to the prejudice, if you want to maintain your opinion and your position, send it away. And you can find a lot of support for that in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a lot of people that will support you in sending people away that are incorrectly alcoholic. Lots of people in the AA won't work with people on medication. I have no experience with that. Lots of people in the AA won't work with people that are drug addicted. I, I don't identify. I was never raised that way. You never say no. You have no idea why they're asking you for help. You have no idea why they've been sent to you. Maybe they need to hang on to you for a while until they find the right person to be with. That's happened to me a lot, a lot over the years. I don't think they have a problem being a drug addict. I think what they're looking for is recovery. Do you know anything about that? I know a lot about recovery. I'll work with anybody. I don't care what your problem is. And when I'm sponsoring you, I will tell you where you need to go. And I have connections and other fellowships. Of course I do. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm a member of the recovery community. The recovery houses are not our enemies. They're our friends. They don't always handle themselves well. They dump people on us that maybe they shouldn't, but they are not the enemy. They are our friends. They're helping us in this work. That's how people get to us now, is through recovery houses, not off the street anymore, rarely. It's up to us to deal with whatever comes. We don't get to pick and choose. This is a spiritual program, not an intellectual one. It's just happening all the time. It's just flowing all the time. People's lives are saved here every day. And the vehicle that's used for that life saving is us. It's us. This guy walked up to me and asked me to sponsor me. He says, I think I should tell you that I'm gay. I said, wouldn't you rather have a gay sponsor? He looked right at me and he says, No, I don't have a problem being gay, but drinking is an issue. <laughs> Who knew? God walked up to me. I used to stand up here at these podiums, and I would say, "If you were on medication, that you weren't sober." Now, I didn't know anything about that, but I don't require knowledge to form an opinion. (laughs) All I need to do is hear some of you say that stuff, and I want to feel like part of you, and I want to be a right-wing badass. So I just start repeating what you say to me, without not knowing that you're full of shit. You know, I don't know that sounds really good to me. You know, so I just take it up. So sure enough, this guy walks across the room and he says, "I'm bipolar and I'm on medication. Will you sponsor me?" I'm like, Geez. But you can't say no. You can't say no. It's a rule. You can't say no. If I want my life to stay small, I'll control the experience. If I want it to get larger, I'll just let it rip and just go with whatever comes along. So I started reading the book with this guy, and I had the experience of peeling him off the ceiling and lifting him off the floor. A 40-year-old grown man, the guy curled up in my lap one time, put his head in my shoulder, and cried like a baby. And I'm sitting there rocking, and my wife, Karen, walked through the room. She goes, Whoa! I mean, that won't get your attention, you
1: know?
0: Now when I see that guy coming, I go, Have you taken your medication? So I had an opinion, then I had an experience that has changed my opinion. That's how it works. If I don't have the experience, nothing will change. Nothing will change. If all I'm doing is going to meetings, nothing will change. If I'm not sponsoring people, nothing will change. I will never confront my defects of character. If I don't sponsor people, it will never happen. That's the mechanism that, that is used to cause us to address six and seven. I'll sit and give a guy a 20-minute talk on how he should live his life. He'll leave the room and I'll think to myself, man, that's good stuff. I should try some of that.
1: <laughs>
0: I'll tell you to pray and meditate every morning, and I won't do it myself, but I'll tell you to do it. And I'll lead you to believe by telling you that, that that's what I do. Is that a lie? But of course it is. You know? The road gets narrower. I'm a liar. Being you know? I mean, 10 years sober, I'm, not, I'm accurately trying to make a name for myself in an anonymous organization. I, I was president of AA at the time. You know? And I had some sort of mental and emotional collapse. And I went to my sponsor and he said, go find God. And I yelled at him and I said, don't treat me like Newcomer, I don't need any mindless platitudes. And he yelled at me again, and he said, "You talk a good game. Now go do it." I said, "I think I should put talking at meetings because you don't get to pick and choose. But once you start telling the truth, now I'm not lying. He goes, stop doing theater. Tell us what's really going on with you. We'll get it." Everything changed. Everything changed. If I hadn't been sponsoring people, if I hadn't been doing that work, none of that would have been confronted. I would have never run into myself. You cannot replace that with anything else, with any other activity. There's nothing as powerful as sitting across the table from the gallery. When two people come together, not just one is helped. I was under the illusion that I'm the one that's, that's all springing forth from me. No. That isn't what's going on at all, you know? It's my medicine. It's what's causing me to grow up to become a man. You know, I met a woman in an Alcoholics Anonymous, and we've been together 18 years, and I never thought I would be so close to somebody in my life. I never knew. I didn't know. I didn't know. I've never experienced it. I didn't know what love was. I'm not capable of it. I'm not capable of receiving it or giving it today. That's different now. I've grown up. I'm not a frightened little boy anymore. You know, I've grown up. I'll close with this. People will tell you in AA, you've got to give it away to Jesus. No. You have to give it away to even get it. If you're not giving it away, you don't have it. Thank you very much.